Suzuki Roshi once said, everything is perfect, but there's a lot of room for improvement. And it seems when we come to spiritual life that we need to hold both, both truths. We need to hold both sides of this truth if we are to live really in harmony with ourselves and with the world. This statement points to two levels of truth, one pointing to that of the absolute and the other pointing to that of the more relative, everyday, conditioned world. Sometimes people get stuck on one side or the other. Or you could even say that whole cultures at times get stuck on one side or the other. And I think that we here in America tend to give a little bit more emphasis on the idea of improvement, of making progress, that there's a lot of room for improvement and it's up to us to make it. Whereas a culture like India lives a little bit more on the other side of things, saying, well, everything is perfect. I don't understand it, but it's all just perfect. So we need to look at both sides. And particularly when we come to spiritual life, to see how these ideas affect the way in which we hold certain assumptions about ourselves and what we expect from this practice. We live in a very materialistic, individualistic, capitalist world which worships progress. It is imbued in us from the time we are little that we are somehow here to make progress, and that it is very much an individual effort that is required. And because we are imbued with this notion so strongly from the time we are little, I feel it is one of the assumptions which we then bring to spiritual life. We are here to improve ourselves. We are here to make progress. Or in order to be a spiritual person, I must improve myself. Because this assumption is very widespread and pervasive, we may not even know that we're operating from it. So I think it is helpful to inquire into this a little bit more to see we are how we are being influenced by it in the way that we approach our spiritual practice. So I'd like to invite you uh, when I teach in California we we tend to sit around a little bit closer to each other and it's a little bit more informal in feeling and so one of the ways I've enjoyed teaching is by really trying to involve you in the process. So even though we are a little more formal here, I'd like to invite you to participate. And so let's look together at this question of progress. When I say, what does it mean to progress, what gets elicited in you? What comes up? What, what do you 
think of? Anybody? What does it mean to progress? Yes. To get better. Definitely. To become what you've envisioned. To have a goal. To what? To slow down. Yes? To not be disturbed by outside things. To not be disturbed by outside things. Now, I'm talking more generally about progress in any area of our life, not just in this particular retreat center, but just what does it mean generally to progress? Let's start with the general. Yes, Henry. To beat the Japanese. (laughs) There's somebody to compete with. To make money. To have more of the good life. To excel. And what do all of these seem to imply? Well, one of the things that I thought about is that it implies a kind of linear development over time of starting with some goal and progressing towards it and having some way of measuring how far we are going in our progress. And in this linear development, there's a certain hierarchy. There's a sense that some are progressing more than others. And there's the sense of needing to improve, to get better. We have a very definite sense of goal. And with that, too, comes a sense of, well, there's success and there's failure. There's some way to know where you are along this progression. And along with this, we can look at some of the metaphors of spiritual progress. Because I think that many of our religious institutions are very much imbued with this idea that progress in and of itself is a good thing and that it can be developed and it can be measured. And so what are some of these metaphors of spiritual progress? How are they communicated? In what sorts of stories? Well, here are some of the metaphors that I thought of. You may think of others. One is the metaphor of engaging in an arduous battle, the forces of good versus the forces of evil, with images of heaven and hell. Another metaphor is that of climbing a mountain or undertaking a journey with many hardships and detours and lifetimes involved. Or that of walking a narrow path from which you had best not stray. These are all metaphors of the spiritual life and they all kind of evoke this idea of making progress, of going from point A to point Z. Now, these metaphors are accepted by us 
and rarely questioned as to their actual usefulness or validity. Is spiritual life a battle, an arduous struggle, a tried and true path only for the chosen few, or a long protracted journey of countless lifetimes? Well, if you believe it is, it probably will be. Your expectations of this exploration will very much determine your course, as will your teacher's expectations of you. You know, they've done a lot of research in education, which shows that in the classroom, it's very much um, the teacher's expectations of the students that actually determine how well people do, how well the students do. And I don't think it's any different when it comes to this kind of venture. You know, as students, how good you are at figuring out what you imagine the teacher expects of you, and then coming up with what you imagine are meeting that person's expectations. Right? You know, when we come, when you come to group interviews, we're not going to ask you your life story. We're not going to um, ask you what you ate for lunch, or you know, we we have a certain way of emphasizing certain things and not emphasizing other things. And very quickly, you get on to what we expect, what kind of information you expect from us. So it's very useful as a student to be aware of what your teacher's expectations actually are, because you as a student will probably fulfill those expectations. It is a two-way street. That's a bit of a digression, but to get back to these metaphors of climbing mountains and engaging in arduous battles, now, truly, these metaphors provide very good stories and, and kind of a, a sense of drama about this whole enterprise of heroic effort and tremendous struggle with many obstacles. And in hearing these stories, they perhaps arouse a certain curiosity, a certain competitive spirit may come out, a certain sense of inspiration and motivation to in undergo this kind of challenge. But this way of thinking about spiritual life may also arouse other, what I feel are less helpful, emotions, fantasies, and expectations. And what might some of these be? What else gets aroused when you hear of some amazing, long, enduring spiritual struggle what other emotions get aroused? Anyone? Fear. Despair. The slop, the torture. <laughs> Stay in bed, it's not worth it.
What else? <laughs> Doubt. Doubt. Resistance. What else? Hopeless, before you've even started. Anything else? Anger? Pride? Exclusivity? You mean it's only for the chosen few, kind of? Mm-hmm. The need for an enemy, something to overcome, or we're not really suffering enough, we're not doing a good job. Indecision, do I want to do this? I mean, do I really want to do this or not? Sacrifice, I must sacrifice for this, for this challenge. So quite a bit gets aroused. It's interesting, isn't it, when we just look a little bit at what comes up in us when we hear these kinds of metaphors being presented. Another one which I thought of is this idea of postponement, that this is a long, very long journey, and whatever benefits are to come are way out there somewhere. They're not going to be immediately apparent, so I just need to, you know, realize that from the outcome. So these metaphors of effortful, linear progress up the spiritual mountain or along the narrow path create certain very commonly accepted assumptions. So tonight I'd like to look at four of these assumptions that are particularly pertinent to this particular path. The first assumption is that liberation, freedom, the goal of this practice, can only come after many years or lifetimes of hard practice. The goal is indefinitely postponed. The second assumption, I need to become a perfect human being before liberation is possible. There's a tremendous amount of self-improvement here, which must occur first. Just as I am right now is certainly not good enough. I must improve. So again, there is this sense of postponement. A third assumption, somewhat linked to the last, is that Well, I'm just not the kind of person who could possibly realize what the Buddha did. I mean, I'm too worldly. I I enjoy life too much. I don't suffer enough. I've got children. I have to take care of the house. Again, another assumption. And fourthly, the assumption that we are seeking for something which is not already present and functioning in us, that what we are seeking is somewhere else. Now, I believe that these assumptions limit us very much, that they truly limit our vision of what is possible right now in this moment. 
They keep us postponing. They keep us looking in the wrong place. They keep what is present now hidden from us. The truth is we actually don't know what it means to progress when it comes to spiritual life. We haven't a clue. We have images, we have ideas, we have certain models that are presented to us, but actually we haven't a clue. So many of you come to interview with some idea of not making progress. And it's often kind of curious to me that somebody may come in on the fourth or fifth day of a retreat and they're They look wonderful. They look very rested. They look very peaceful. They look a thousand times younger than the day they arrived. And they sit there and they say, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not making progress. We have no idea what progress is. So, We allow the past, other conditioning to come in, these other assumptions to form without really questioning their usefulness. So I'd like to look again at these four assumptions and challenge them. The first, liberation can only come after many years and lifetimes of hard practice. Now I feel that within this assumption there is a basic confusion There is a confusion of effort with time. Time spent sitting, walking, struggling, observing, paying attention. But it takes no time to be aware. Awareness is not a function of time. Awareness is like the sun, which is always shining, or like the space in which we live. It is always present, always available, if we open to it. It it takes no time to be aware. Does it? What does it take? What does it take to be aware? Willingness, the intention, that's what it takes to be aware. Are you willing to be aware? That's all it takes. So the belief that it's necessary to make effort over time adds up to postponement. And this assumption may very much prevent you from recognizing or discovering freedom now, in this very moment. The second assumption that I need to become somehow a perfect human being first because I, as I am, I am not worthy or good enough to deserve spiritual, spiritual realization. Again, that what this adds up to is another reason to postpone. And this assumption, I think, also brings up a kind of question or phrase that floats around in Dharma circles all the time. 
And although I think there's a grain of truth in it, I think it's a bit overused. And it's the phrase, you have to have a self before you can lose it. You have to have a self before you can lose it. Now, there is a grain of truth in it because you have to be able to be integrated in enough to observe yourself without getting lost. There is truth in that. But too often, I feel, it is used as another form of postponement, another reason to engage in more self-improvement. And it seems to me, looking around this room, that all of you here have enough self to lose it. <laughs> this American version of self is something we are really quite obsessed with. We are never good enough. We have a very um, deep sense culturally of unworthiness and there's a huge market of self-improvement out there which really plays on this. We want to replace this sense of a negative self with a more positive self. But the obsession with self remains whether it is negative or positive. I feel what's needed is not more self-improvement to fix up this kind of imperfect and troublesome self, but actually greater heartfelt confidence in the wholeness and essential goodness of our being, which is already present and functioning in us. What's needed is the realization that who we are right now is enough. You know, in the eyes of a Buddha, or a Kuan Yin, or actually any enlightened being, all beings are equally worthy of enlightenment. It is only up to us to realize, to recognize, and to claim our freedom. I, one of my teachers, loves to joke around, and he tells how he laughs in amazement when people come to him and say they want to be enlightened. He thinks it's very, very funny. Because to him, being quite enlightened, it's like the bear in the story I told the other night about the, the bear in the mountains who was doing tricks. He said, you know, to him it's like the bear coming to him and saying, I want to be a bear. For him it's a big joke. In our original nature we are already good and pure and whole and complete. And also, on the other side, as human beings living in a relative world, we make mistakes and we are imperfect. To be human is to make mistakes and hopefully to learn from them. A student asked a teacher, what is the secret of life? The teacher said, 
good judgment. The student asked, how do I get good judgment? The teacher says, through experience. The student says, how do I get experience? The teacher says, bad judgment. <laughs> and so it goes. The direction which we are encouraging here is not one of trying to perfect ourselves, but rather one of acceptance and tolerance and greater spaciousness, learning to relate to all the most troublesome aspects of our own being. The third assumption is that this belief that, well, I'm just not the right sort of person for this practice. I mean, I live in the world. I'm not like the Buddha. I don't sit around all day sitting still. I enjoy life. Well, for many of us, this practice in itself may feel a little bit strange because it comes to us from another culture, another country, where People are, for one thing, more used to sitting around on the floor. So the form of this may be a bit off-putting, that, my goodness, in order to be enlightened, I have to sit in this strange pillow with my knees like this, and they hurt. And We're just not used to this form. And because it's been a monastic tradition, primarily in Asia, we see people who wear robes and shave their heads, and they don't eat afternoon, and... We feel somehow this distance because it's not familiar. So we think maybe this is not for us. It's too severe or too otherworldly. But I want to tell you that really, if you have a mind and a body and you're willing to be aware, you are the right sort of person for this practice. Because what it is essentially about is not the costumes or changing one's lifestyle or shaving your head, but simply the willingness to be awake. Simply the willingness to be awake. It doesn't matter what posture you're sitting in. Sitting in a chair, sitting on the floor, standing, walking, lying down. It's the willingness to be awake. And it actually doesn't matter either where we start in this practice because whatever sort of person you are currently imagining yourself to be, the practice actually balances us. It balances the mind. This cultivation of moment-to-moment attention brings balance. It opens us where we are closed. It calms us where we are agitated. It connects us when we are scattered. It soothes us when we are sorrowful. It pacifies us when we are angry. So no matter where we start, the practice gives us exactly what we need. It brings balance and health to the mind. It is like good medicine. Now the fourth assumption is quite a bit more subtle than the other ones I've mentioned. And it is the assumption 
that comes when we hold to a kind of linear hierarchical view of progress on the spiritual path, it's the assumption that we are or should be seeking for something which is not present. We should be seeking for something which is not present. And there is a kind of paradox here. A Sufi says, this thing we tell of can never be found by seeking, yet only seekers find it. It's the mind's tendency to seek, to look, to look for something which it imagines it lacks. It is the mind's tendency to seek, to look for something which it imagines it lacks. And usually, this seeking takes it into some form of activity, some form of doing, taking up a practice, a method, a technique, or adopting a lifestyle. This is actually the mind's habit. So, because this is our habit based on the past, we do seek. And we find a teaching, a teacher, a practice, a place to come. And this is all very good because in this process, we are beginning to investigate. We're beginning to ask questions. We're beginning to inquire into life. We're not just taking everything for granted. And that's a huge step. That is a huge step for any human being to take. Not to take things for granted, to ask questions, to learn, to pay attention, to see the nature of the mind and the body, not read about it, but to really see in your own experience to come to know your tendencies to reject or avoid, to cling or to grasp, to know the fleeting and unsatisfactory nature of all aspects of our sensory experience, to know the fleeting and insubstantial nature of thought and emotion. We learn to relate to pain and pleasure. We learn to live with greater harmony with ourselves and with other people. And this is all a very good thing. These are good things to know about. And all the while we are doing this, we have many, many experiences, spiritual experiences. And this is where it begins to get a little bit tricky because these experiences may be very, very interesting, and they're quite endless. There's no end to the kinds of experiences you can have, sitting on the pillow, walking, being silent. So we begin to imagine that the answer to our questions is to be found in this realm of experience. And so we continue looking for more things to be aware of, more states to be aware of, more difficulties to overcome, perhaps, more bliss, more rapture, more experiences, until one day we find we have quite a collection. We've become not just a seeker, but a seeker with a long and colorful spiritual history. And some of the people who've been around here for a while can be happy to share their history with you. <laughs> we, 
we've actually created in this process a whole other identity for ourselves based on the accumulation of all these experiences. And perhaps if we're lucky, one day we will begin to see the limitations of this. The limitation of all experience, no matter how profound. And that is that experience, especially when it's very interesting, vivid, pleasurable, spiritual, The limitation of experience is that it tends to awaken and solidify the sense of self. This I, this me, this my can become quite strong. And this is the primary and most subtle obstacle, this sense of self, of me, of mine. And although it's not as gross as the self, which many in this world are pursuing, it's not the self which is pursuing worldly fame or wealth or status or attention, which are the more obvious props of ego in our culture, still it is accumulating status on more subtle levels. That of being a good yogi of having incredibly good mindfulness, of having strong samadhi, of having excellent sila, of having sat with so many teachers and so many courses and so much time. But still it is a self. It is still an I having, doing, or becoming something. And it is this very subtle relationship between I and what I am experiencing, I and object, which needs to be inquired into. It is this relationship which actually needs to collapse. Because the ultimate goal of this practice cannot be objectified. The ultimate goal is not yet another object or experience to be aware of. It is rather the releasing of all one's tendencies to grasp at any object, any experience. So to seek for liberation in the realm of experience is actually off the mark. The search for more experience actually leads us away once again from the realization of freedom in this moment, now. When we say some to know freedom or to know liberation, what, what words are used to describe this event? What words are used to describe this event, to know freedom? Anyone? That's one word. 
some of the words that I thought of were to awaken. To awaken or to realize or to see, to have insight or to open, to open. And what do all of these words have in common? Do any of these words imply seeking or attaining something that is not already present? No. To know freedom is not to attain what is not present, but to realize what is already present. What is already present? And this is where words begin to fail. What is always and ever-present is described in many ways because it is so impossible to describe. But some of the words point to a presence sometimes This is described as a presence, such as Buddha nature. Other times it is expressed more as an absence, such as emptiness. And some call it neither a presence nor an absence, and some call it both. These words are only fingers pointing to the moon. They don't say they cannot do more. So it is important when we hear these words not to grasp hold of them as another concept, but rather to, to see them as pointers, to see them as fingers pointing to the moon. See where they are pointing. One teacher says, there is no teacher, there is no student, There is no dharma to be transmitted. There are only the stars twinkling in the night sky. Ramana Maharshi said, There is no greater mystery than this that we keep seeking reality, though in fact we are reality. We think that there is something hiding reality and that this must be destroyed before reality is gained. How ridiculous. A day will dawn when you will laugh at all your past efforts. That which will be, that which will be on the day you laugh is also here and now. Another expression of this, which cannot be spoken about, comes from the Zen tradition. There is a reality even prior to heaven and earth. Indeed, it has no form, much less a name. Eyes fail to see it. 
it has no voice for ears to detect. To call it mind or Buddha violates its nature, for it then becomes like a visionary flower in the air. It is not mind nor Buddha, absolutely quiet and yet illuminating in a mysterious way. It allows itself to be perceived only by the clear-eyed. It is dharma truly beyond form and sound. It is Tao having nothing to do with words. Wishing to entice the blind, the Buddha has playfully let words escape his golden mouth. Heaven and earth are ever since filled with entangling briars. O oh, my good, worthy friends gathered here, if you desire to listen to the thunderous voice of the Dharma, exhaust your words, empty your thoughts, for then you may come to recognize this one essence. To close, I'd like to offer what I feel is a more accurate and useful metaphor for spiritual awakening than that of making linear hierarchical progress up a mountain, in a battle, or going along a narrow path. And it is the metaphor of the garden, wherein soil is cultivated, Seeds are planted, and conditions are optimized for the growth, maturation of flowering of many varieties of plants, each in its own time and in its own unique way. A rose doesn't measure its progress against the zinnia across the way, and the cabbage doesn't judge itself for not being a radish. Each person's spiritual flowering has its own timing, its own mysterious and organic process of unfolding. Everything is perfect, but there's a lot of room for improvement. In nature, we may see or intuit that everything is perfect, just as it is. When you're out in the wilderness, it doesn't seem, when you look, does it, that you need to improve on it, that you need to move this tree over here and sort of level off this mountain and, you know, rearrange the weeds and move the rocks. No, that idea doesn't even arise. It's all just perfect, just the way it is. And all of it is unfolding according to very natural, organic causes and conditions. And if you want to cultivate a garden, there is a lot of room for improvement. Both are true. The garden of your own spiritual realization is your own unique manifestation of the ever-present, unfolding truth of being. I'd like to read one last poem about a garden. 
Along the edge is the wrong way. The further inward I reach, the closer to it I come. The deeper down I swim, the more air I can breathe. The emptier I become, the more fruit my garden yields. So maybe we could sit together for a few minutes. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Insight Meditation Society on July 22, 1992. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.